This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and The Future for Investors. We're also going to be joined for the first half by Kevin Flanagan, who's the head of fixed income strategy at Wisdom Tree. Uh, and Kevin and I are rich representatives of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a supervisor of Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. A professor, another hot inflation number. You've been talking about these inflation numbers for some time. We're going to have Kevin to talk about what's happening in the fixed income markets. And I've got some questions for you on what's happening in the rotation. But uh, let's first uh, have you just give your, your quick recap of the inflation and what that all means for the Fed and the markets. Yeah, it, it was worse than expected. Um, we're really seeing that lag effect of, uh, of uh, rent and shelter costs, which uh, move up, which are going to continue to move up in the index through this year to continue pushing that index higher. I think next month could be as bad, if not worse, than this month. And that's important because the next month's uh, uh, announcement for the consumer price index is March 10th. That's just uh, six days before the uh, the Fed meeting, I think that that uh, March 6th, if it is as bad as I imagine it might be, we will get a 50 basis point uh, rate hike um, uh, next month. Um, because uh, we, of course, know about uh, our, our good friend James Bullard, who has been on our show many times. And uh, we plan to be on our show uh, later this month. Uh, uh, shocked the market by saying that he thought by the summer we should be at least at 1%, uh, a feeling that I agree with uh, uh, 100%. Professor, you know, uh, one thing that I, I wanted to, to ask you that doesn't seem to be getting all that much attention is the balance sheet. I mean, obviously, Fed rate hikes, 50 basis points, that makes for great headlines. And yesterday, we, we certainly didn't have any absence of those. But I, I wanted to get, what are your thoughts on the Fed balance sheet? Do, do you think there's a chance that they could, in the second half of the year, rely more on the balance sheet and take a pause with rate hikes, do both at the same time? Um, what, what do you think? I think that they're going to do both at the same time. But, Kevin, I don't, I'm not sure the balance sheet uh, is going to do much because they supplied so much excess reserves to the banks over uh, the uh, pandemic period that the banks don't really need them. So they're going to run off excess reserves, which the, the banks have actually been giving back to the Fed in reverse repos uh, to get a few, a few uh, basis points of interest. So it's it's not like they're really going to be hurting the bank's reserve supply in terms of lending. It's not going to be like it was three years ago when we had far less excess reserves and when they started running off the balance sheet, it began to touch a nerve. So I don't think the running off of the balance sheet uh, is uh, sufficient. I think the big uh, heavy lifting has got to be done by the rate hike. Yeah. You know, I mean, we've been, we've been doing this a while and we know when the markets give the Fed a runway, like 50 basis points they're doing now, it would it would seemingly suggest that would be the path they're going to go down in March, right? I mean, what would what do you think could change that where they would only do 25? Well, a, a mild uh, inflation report uh, that comes uh, six days earlier, uh, if it's below expectations, uh, the doves on the committee might be enough for the 50 basis points. Uh, we have uh, right now December uh, Fed funds is trading at 168. Wow. Right now. I'm looking at it. December Fed funds at 168. 
I mean, how many? That's seven increases, I imagine. Um, at least, and those are downward biased because of risk characteristics. Uh, the expected value, I mean, I think Goldman went to seven, um, and they were at five just a week ago. Um, uh, I think you're going to see uh, it continue to move up. Again, the data is the most important thing. We, we all talk about what they're going to do, what they're going to do. They're going to do depending on what they see. You know, they see oil above $100 a barrel. If they see another 7, 8 tenths, uh, eight tenths of a percent on the CPI and the core. Um, and, of course, we're, we're going to get the Monday, we're going to get uh, producer price inflation, not as important, but still producer price inflation. Uh, they will react. So it's premature now to say it's in their mind. They know what they're going to do. They don't. They will be reacting to the data that we get between now and the meeting next month. I, I think that's that's a key point, just watching the markets yesterday. It's almost sometimes you just have to tell everybody, wait, just take a deep breath, right? Step back for a minute. And, and the other thing I was actually talking to a reporter about yesterday was um, – the Humphrey Hawkins testimony, the semi-annual monetary policy report, we're still waiting on a date for that unless one occurred within the last, say, half hour or so that I that I missed. So I was actually wondering, and, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this as well, that, I mean, ch chances are, if, if in fact we get this testimony before the, the next meeting, I, I would imagine Powell will pretty much be guiding us during that testimony, right, as to what well, could be the more likely occurrence at March? And could this be like the Jackson Hole in February, in other words? I think you're making, yeah, uh, Kevin, I think you're making excellent points. Yes. In fact, I think that the, the report has to be delivered in February. It's often been February 28th. Um, but that is before the report. And yes, I think he will tip his hand. Now, we, we're getting comments from Fed officials, but not from Powell. He has not, to my knowledge, responded yet to yesterday's announcement. Um, um, I don't think he's made up his mind. I think he's waiting. But I think that that monetary policy report and the questions and answers that come from it will give us a very good indication. Um, but again, uh, by the time that report is given, he will not have this month's consumer price index yet under his belt. So he will have wiggle room. Uh, but it will uh, it will tip his hand on how he feels now. The pressure is getting great. The political pressures of this inflation is the biggest issue that drags Biden down right now. And the political pressures are going to be very great on the Fed to move to uh, counteract this inflation. Professor, so the market was far from you three months ago, and it's come so close. I mean, if, if, what you're saying at the 168, you know, you were so uh, much higher than most people were when you were calling for 2% by the end of the year, and the market's come your way a lot. The 10 years broached two and passed two now. Uh, the two yeah. years shot much higher. How are you thinking about what's been now priced in and, and where the risks are from, from here? Like what, how, do you, how do you think about how the market's adjusted so far? Well, I think fixed income goes higher uh, because I think that the inflation is going to be more persistent and the Fed is going to have to be more aggressive. So, yes, they're pricing in a lot. Um, look at how they've shifted from the dot plot, which only called for three, two to three increases by year end. And we're already that's like, uh, I mean, Bullard's calling for more than that by the summer. Right. Uh, it's already, uh, again, the data will dictate, but I don't picture the data being favorable over the next two, three, four months for them not to continue to be, to get more hawkish on that. And again, we see a rotation as we've talked about today. Again, um, value stocks are outperforming the growth stocks. Um, although it's selective, I mean, you know, a couple, uh, I'm looking right now and, and our investments is up a, a fraction, <laughs> uh, despite, uh, uh, you know, we, we did hit 206 on the, uh, which was a high this morning, just about a half hour ago on the 10 year. I think it's going higher. Um, uh, again, we get producer prices on Monday. That's another 
hint. Um, then we do get the testimony to see where Powell is, um, and then that all-important con- uh, price report on uh, March 10th. So, again, they're very data-dependent. Nobody has made up his or her mind definitively. Board probably says, unless something really surprises me on the downside, I'm going to be a very aggressive. He may be a dissenter on the aggressive side, wanting a 50 basis point hike. Too, too early to say. This particular juncture, we'll have to see how that uh, February consumer price data comes out. Uh, I'm going to ask one more question on stocks, and then we'll, we could we could let you go. Uh, and one of the, the as you, we've been talking about this great rotation for so long, and it's interesting when you think about like the dividend baskets. And historically, there was some sense that they were these bond proxies and bond substitutes. The narrative was drawing that the dividend stocks were like these higher duration assets. And obviously, the huge rotation now is saying large cap growth stocks are you know far out cash flows trade like the zero coupon bonds and big moves in duration. Um, there's a BAML study saying the highest duration stocks were down about 10% in January. As you think through the narratives that cause these repricing, how what, how much is real? How much is just the, the the sentiment driven? Any any sense of what's causing this huge rotation in the sentiment? Uh, I think it's completely rate driven. I think this is an absolutely logical. I, I think this market is logical. <laughs> I mean, what's happening here? You know, I, I call it a taper tremors. You know, for over a year, I've said the Fed is going to what the market's going to have them as the Fed pivots more and more hawkish. Stocks are still the place to be in the inflation, but we're going to have those tremors and we're going to have that pivot. Now, we didn't have the growth value pivot much last year. We didn't really, I think, growth still outperformed. But those, exactly as you say, the high-duration stocks is what theory says is going to be hit. Look at, uh, you know, the 10-year the, the, the tips is minus right now 0.44%. Now, just uh, a month or two ago, that was below minus 1%. So the real discount rates have gone up over the last several weeks, months. And it has an exact, just like a 30-year bond should be affected more than a 10, than a 5, than a 2, as we teach in the first two weeks of Finance 101, that's exactly what's happening in the market. All very interesting, and uh, you've been been spot on on, on on these calls on inflation, and uh, we appreciate all your all your comments. Uh, have a great weekend. Thank you very much, Jeremy. We'll talk to you soon. I'm going to turn my conversation back to Kevin. Uh, so, Kevin, what you heard from the professor? He's been calling it hot. How are you thinking through the end of the year with what you heard from the professor and, and thinking through rates and and how to navigate this this cycle towards the end of the year? So I'm I'm like the collective market, right? I'm I'm coming around to the professor's point of view. You know, you and I we've had we've had our chats, um, and and I was probably more in the four rate hike camp to begin with. But it, it really seems as if could we get to the Greenspan 0406 rate hike cycle where they just do a quarter point at every meeting over the next couple of years and. We, we, we may be gravitating towards that right now. And I think what we're finding out, you know, looking at the Treasury market, um, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, right? I mean, you know, the professor just mentioned what's, what's going on with tips. A lot of people talk about, okay, I'm going to go short duration or ultra short duration. Um, you and I were chatting before we came on, you know, what's gone on with the two-year Treasury yield this year? It's, it's just exploded to the upside so even if you thought you were tra- going to get some relief in the front end of the curve or short duration, um, you're not. And, and to me, that's what's important about this is, you know, where can you go in fixed income? And it pains me being the fixed income strategy guy to say there aren't many places to go. But certainly one area are treasury floating rate notes. That to me, seems to be the logical candidate, right? I mean, what you're looking at here, it, it's, it's reset with the weekly three-month T-bill option. So you're essentially playing along with the Fed. And we've already begun to see T-bill yields rise, and the Fed hasn't lifted a finger. The last auction came at 29 basis points. 
Right now, the top end of the funds rate's 25 basis points. When I woke up this morning, the three-month T-bill was yielding 43 basis points. 43 basis points. So they've already factored in a full rate hike this far in advance. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, the and this is something we were talking about on this program all of last year, that bonds were starting to lose their diversification value. We, we had a number of people coming on talking about commodities, inflation. Uh, and so you look year to date, you look at a broad aggregate bond index, it's down almost 4%. And then what do people do when they want inflation protection? They go to those TIPS bonds, and the TIPS bonds are down even more than 4% when you look at the baskets. The, yes, maybe they get these inflation adjustments higher on principle over time, but the what's the the actual strategies often now are down over over more than the traditional bonds right now kev well that's i mean that's the key i think you made the the perfect point here is that tips are adjusted for inflation treasury floating rate notes are adjusted for fed interest rates there's a big difference between the two so last year of course we had the big spike in inflation you get the adjustment but if now you just see cpi kind of treading water, peaking out a little bit and not supplying the same kind of moves as you had last year, then you don't have that protection anymore, that it becomes more of a real yield play. And when you look at the duration being on the longer end of the scale, you leave yourself open to be you know, vulnerable to what we've seen so far this year in the markets. And you know, I wanted to kind of like come back and bring it back to something that you just said about the ag. Okay, the ag's down 4% this year. Let's extrapolate out. I mean, for the ag not to be negative this year, we may have to see a miracle over the next 10 months, right, for that to occur. And you mentioned how many times, I remember, I think you showed me a chart earlier this week. How many times has that happened over the last 20, 30 years? I, I think you can count it on one hand, right? Less than one hand going back to 1977, I think. So it does get back to, okay, other than treasury floating rate notes, what about commodities? Is that an area that, you know, investors should be looking at as well? Yeah, commodities are up almost double digits to start the year, and, and certainly you've been very hot markets in oil and, and, and other things, and, and I think some of those supply chain issues, the lack of CapEx, we're, we're going to be talking on oil with, with somebody next week on, on the program, um, and sort of the changing dynamics of there's a lot of nuances in the commodity markets and how you roll futures. And it was very expensive. It was a very tough two decades for commodities. And it was very expensive to roll the futures. And that's completely changed where you're now getting paid. Uh, and in some commodities paid a lot to roll the futures versus you know, things like these drags in, in, in other places. So I think it, it's very interesting. Kev, for people, it, it's interesting, as you, and we're talking tips versus floating rate treasuries. You know, the, for a lot of people might not know the history on the floating rate treasuries because it's a pretty new asset class generally. Uh, and we've had you talk about it before, but for, for, for new listeners, talk about the history of tips. You know, when those first came out in 97 and then the floating rates and just a little bit more background for people not familiar of, of the floating rate treasury security. Yeah, great question. I, I actually um, revamped something that I, I wrote about in 2018 during the last rate hike cycle. And when you look at the history of where we are in floating rate treasury notes, time-wise, and say compare it, same kind of time frame, okay, where were tips at that point? The amount outstanding for treasury floating rate notes is two and a half times the size tips were during the same life cycle. And that's an important point, because that was one of the original knocks on tips that, you know, I'm going to date myself going back right into the late 1990s, was that even though it was a treasury security, it didn't have the greatest liquidity profile. And that is not the case with treasury floating rate notes. There's about 600 billion marketable public debt outstanding for that issue right now. And the treasury comes with it every month. And even though Treasury's been paring back a little bit on the size of their auctions due to the fact that, you know, the deficit, instead of being two to three trillion, may only be one to two trillion, um, kind of tongue in cheek there, right? It's still going to be, you know, pretty formidable, the amount of Treasury floating rate notes that are going to continue to be auctioned. So it's Treasuries. There's a lot outstanding liquidity profile, far better. And something that we've noted of late, I I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, but that there is a spread over the three-month T-bill that you're seeing, 
And this auction we had in January was one of the first that I can remember in quite some time. The, the spread was actually negative one and a half basis points. And what's that telling you is that these vehicles are in high demand. And I would imagine that's just going to continue going forward when you start talking about seven rate hikes this year, maybe another four, five, six next year. I think they're going to continue to see a very high demand profile by not just institutional, but individual investors as well. It's been accelerated how quickly the Fed's going to hike. I mean, Siegel's now saying basically, well, obviously got to see the March March number. But 50 is a real possibility five weeks from now, which no, which no one was contemplating recently. And so managing duration risk seems to be the order of the day. Now, obviously, it's moved a lot. But uh, the next four weeks will be very, very interesting for that short end of the curve. During the last Fed cycle, um, Kevin, this – floating rate treasury was the highest yielding treasury at the end of the cycle. And is that is that something you see happening again? Yeah, you know, I mean, and there's and maybe it happens sooner rather than later, because look at the shape of the yield curve. Um, once again, you know, I, I find it difficult to, to jog my memory banks to remember the last time the Fed was about to embark on a rate hike cycle and the yield curve was as flat as it is right now. I think typically speaking, you know, you probably look at a treasury two-year, 10-year spread at 100 basis points or so. It's 45 right now. Um, and if you actually look at a five-year treasury yield, it's only nine basis points below the 10-year. So we're, we're seeing this sort of flattening happening right before our eyes. And the Fed, once again, hasn't even lifted a finger. So as the Fed catches up to the market, you would think, and I know the professors talked about this, um, you're probably going to see an inverted curve again. And if you do see the inverted curve, odds favor, Treasury floating rate notes are going to be the highest yielding Treasury security on the block. It's fascinating. And uh, Siegel teased out that Bullard's coming on in a few weeks. And, you know, he's been one who has worried about the inverted curve. And when we've pushed him on the inverted curve in the past, he didn't want to say if one caused the other or if there was just a correlation, how to think about it. But he just wanted to avoid that, given the, the remarkable tendencies of the inverted curves to coincide with recession, to try to avoid it. But now you just have such different dynamics with inflation. Uh, you also have such different dynamics uh, in some ways on the Treasury, um, the Treasury being this, this the, the, the role of that hedge asset of choice, how much demand is pushing those longer yields lower on that. Uh, it's going to be interesting to hear if he if he is concerned from the Fed side of, of inverting the curve. And then, and then you have the other, right? I know I've listened before and you've had Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester on, right? So she was quoted just, but this was pre-CPI. Maybe, maybe that's our line of demarcation, right? Pre-CPI report yesterday. But yes. she was, you know, talking about, okay, we need to be flexible, things on the table. But I think she used the term, I'm not keen to go 50 at this point. So it'll be interesting to see, I mean, the dynamics, if you could get into that meeting room on March 16th uh, to see the back and forth that you're going to see. You're going to have Bullard on one side of the table, maybe Mester on the other side. But, you know, Chairman Powell will swing down the gavel. It will be what he wants is what's going to occur. And to the professor's point, it's funny, we, we may actually see dissent. But dissents because there's some Fed or voting members that want to be more aggressive, not less aggressive than what we've seen in the past. I have a lot of ways of remembering this next Fed meeting. One of them is my nine-year-old's in a play for, for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. So we'll see what kind of uh, play she <laughs> delivers that evening. And, uh, and it's my birthday. So we'll see what kind of surprise uh, we get on, on both of these activities here. That's, um, that's I tell you the truth. That's probably more important than the Fed meeting. Your your child's play and your birthday. <laughs> Very important day. Um, as we as you think about what else in the fixed income markets, as you're thinking about, so obviously the floating rate treasuries is the key story. Managing the Fed, managing this inflation dynamic, um, and we've got an aggressive curve. What else are you as you as you see and talk to clients about their their portfolios? What are the other types of things you're hearing on people's minds, or things that you're you're looking at to supplement the the ultimate uh, fixed income ballast of portfolios? Yeah, I mean, you know, people are still looking for income. 
right? I mean, even though rates have risen to where they are in absolute terms, they're still historically low. So uh, I'm still getting inquiries from advisors in, in terms of, is there a place to look for yield in a rising rate environment? And, you know, my conversation when, when we have those turn towards alternative credit as an area to take a look at as well, um, because there is some underlying floating rate mechanisms within alternative credit to, to help, I, I think, navigate rate risk. It's not necessarily a rate hedge, say, per, per se, but what it is is, you know, trying to combine uh, generating enhanced yield or enhanced income, but not taking on undue interest rate risk. And that that's an area as well that investors may want to start reading up on a little bit, the alternative credit space. So what is, you know, it begs the question, well, what is alternative credit? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, there's, there's three different kind of areas. There's, you know, business development um, companies. There are mortgage REITs, closed-end funds. And the first two I mentioned tend to have more of that potential floating rate aspect to them. So, you know, it, it's more private kind of credit, right? What you're thinking of and mortgage REITs. Those would be some of the more familiar ones out there. And, and you know, trying to look at a basket of alternative credit, you know, we, we have seen before when you compare it to increases in the 10-year Treasury yield, um, the correlation is, is very low with respect to rates, which is interesting. There will be some correlation to the equity side, but it, it's not, you know, that kind of one-for-one -one correlation. So that's why I think it's, it's an interesting vehicle to take a look at because you are perhaps answering that question, where can I look for income in a rising rate environment? Yeah, like we think about the one of the things happening in the traditional ag is it, as the yields fell, the sort of duration picked up, and so like the, you know the higher the yield, in some ways, lower duration. But you get this element in those baskets that seem very different risk, and definitely it's not your traditional fixed income. It's got a little bit of an equity beta, as you said, and and in, in a stress event, um, it's certainly not going to be traditional fixed income. Um, but the question is, like, are we in a stress event? You know, and I guess I, that question comes to the traditional credit side is you haven't had a, a traditional credit cycle. It's been a very robust, uh, all the stimulus measures to support the economy through the pandemic. You, you know, credit has done well. You haven't seen a, a lot of bankruptcies, stuff like that, of, of defaults on the credit. Anything you're watching as we go through this next phase? Well, it, I think that's a, a great observation that you know, traditional credit, say investment grade high yield, we have begun to see spreads widen. Uh, that's a relatively new phenomenon so far this year. I mean, they had been hanging at tight, historically narrow ranges for a while, but this year you're beginning to see that widening. And what's interesting, if you look at some of the ultra short or short duration credit instruments that are out there year to date over the last six months, um, you're starting to see negative returns, right, where people would be looking at these as rate hedge kind of vehicles, but the credit aspect kind of outweighing perhaps what they've been focusing on on the rate front. And that that's where I think you need to really look under the hood. If you want rate hedging in your fixed income portfolio, which is something that we have a high conviction, um, you know, thesis about for, for this year and probably next year as well, know what's under the hood. Um, you know, is it is it credit or is it rates? That's why I, I think Treasury floating rate strategies, you're dealing with treasuries. You don't, in theory, have that type of corporate credit risk also to contend with. Well, Kev, uh, a great tour of, of the fixed income markets and the macro with the professor to kick us off. Appreciate your comments and, and, and look forward to talking to you again, again soon. Thanks for joining us here. Thanks. Who you want in the Super Bowl? You know, um, I guess my, my family's from Ohio. I think we're going to have to go with, the, with, with Cincinnati. Ah, love it. The underdog. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Jar. Always read for the underdog. Thanks, Kev. We talk with Kevin Flanagan, who's the head of fixed income strategy for Wisdom Tree. My next guest is Dave Donabedian, who's the chief investment officer for CIBC Private Wealth Management, who's been there for over a decade. He also is a return guest from Behind the Markets and a graduate from the Wharton School. Always a great pleasure to have our fellow Wharton grads on, on Behind the Markets and Business Radio here, powered by the Wharton School. Dave, welcome back to Behind the Markets. Thanks, Jeremy. Good to be here. 
Let's uh, let's start with some of your your top down views. Uh, you know, it's been a, a interesting start to the year with with the Fed and inflation and the rotation happening. Maybe give us your your top down. How are you advising clients at, at CIBC? What's your your overall big picture worldview here? Well, coming into the year, uh, you know, we reminded clients that um, you know. The prior three years, the market has compounded at a 26% annualized rate. And our message was, you know, thanks for the memories, but don't expect that going forward. Uh, We're entering a new zone here where we get a a more uh, hawkish pivot in monetary policy. And um, it's going to be, as we've already seen, a a more volatile year. And investors should temper their expectations about the, uh, you know, the, the upside potential for the equity market. Now, that's not the same thing as, as calling for a, for a bear market, because we think uh, actually this economy is going to perform well from a growth perspective this year, and earnings are going to be decent. And uh, we think U.S. equities will end at least a little bit above where, where they finished uh, 2021, but it's not going to be a fun ride getting there. We're going to see more bouts of volatility like we, like we saw um, in January because we're going from, uh, you know, extraordinary liquidity provision by both the uh, sort of the fiscal and monetary sides in Washington uh, to something more restrictive. And it's going to be harder to make money in that environment. Well, well that, what a good call to start the year there. What, as you think, what has been priced? I mean, we, we on Behind the Markets have been talking a lot about the Fed over the last three months. And Professor Siegel has been out there on the curve as for the most aggressive on the Fed. And they've come so far now. How, how much do you think has been priced in such that a lot of that's, that volatility is now it's going to be less shocking as, as the Fed moves, or, or do you think there's even more? There's, there's more adjustments to the Fed cycle that needs to occur from here. I think there are more. I, th- I think the Fed is still behind the curve. Of course, they haven't actually really done anything yet, but, but just in terms of where they're, they're positioning and messaging, I, I think they're, they're still behind the curve. Um, inflation isn't transitory. It's, it's going to be sticky high. And um, if you kind of look at what the, the Fed funds futures markets are forecasting now, it, it's that we end the year uh, somewhere between, uh, you know, with a Fed funds rate somewhere between 150 and 175 basis points. So call it a you know, quarter point hike at, at each of the seven remaining FOMC meetings. Um, I think that's the low case at this point. And uh, the, the risk is that we get more, more tightening. Um, uh, you look at the gap between the rate of inflation in the economy and where the 10-year Treasury is, for instance. Uh, that, that's a, a record gap. I think that um, uh, the Fed is going to have to contend with rising inflationary expectations, and they're going to have to do more to combat it. So um, a more challenging monetary policy environment than what is currently baked into the market. So how long – so it's interesting how you know there's definitely – parallels with what we've been talking about in the show, how, how high do you think inflation will stay for how long? I mean, I think that's one of the questions is, when does it revert back to, you know, their old 2% numbers? How, how long do you think it stays elevated during this cycle? Yeah, I think the answer to, to you know, when does it go back to 2%, uh, the answer is something approximating never. Uh, I, I don't think we're going to see a, a resettling back to that 2% level. Um, um, so we're at a seven and a half percent headline rate of inflation now. That is going to calm down as the year goes on. It probably hasn't quite peaked, but uh, you know some of those uh, pandemic-related, uh, supply chain-related disruptions are going to calm down. So that headline rate will come down. The question is, where does it settle? Uh, we think it's not two percent. It's it's a zone of three to four percent. Um, we probably won't see that settling until next year. But um, so, you know, if you just take the average, the, the median and say, OK, that's a three and a half percent new trend rate of inflation vis-a-vis two that we've all gotten used to. Um, that's not a, a catastrophic outcome for the stock market, let's say. Um, but it's, it's not friendly either. Right. It, it implies that the Fed has more work to do if the new trend rate of inflation is 150 basis points more than it's been for 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 the prior decade. So. Um, it, it's one reason for having a more uh, tempered view of the likely return from the equity markets and the bond markets, for that matter, over the next uh, three to five years. 
Well, what's interesting about that number you just said, Dave, is I, I was doing some long-term uh, modeling actually this morning. I put out a piece on on what's been the inflation since post-World War II from 1946 through last year. It was actually a little bit above 3.5%. And you know what right. stock returns over that period did 11. Um, and you know, it was driven by earnings growth and a, a nice average dividend yield over time um, in the U.S. markets. How, what, what do you think is the reason why it stays at that three and a half level? Because uh, most people I'm talking about say, oh, yeah, it's high from the pandemic, but it's it, the structural forces of demographics and technology, deflation is a risk versus this three and a half percent. You're actually one of the first that, I, that I'm hearing saying it's going to stay elevated at this three and a half percent number. Part of, part of it is I think all of those uh, – Structural factors you mentioned were great um, uh, catalysts for disinflation. Um, they're not going to be as powerful going forward, right? I think the whole, the whole globalization concept, right, that there were there were new markets in which to find cheap products and, and cheap labor. Um, globalization isn't going away, but it's peaked. Um, it, it's going to be less of a force. It may, may, may even be um, contracting some. Some of that is due to, to uh, political populism around the world. Some of it is due to a response to, to COVID and the shortages that that, that um, created. Uh, so, so I think that's one factor. I think an open question here is what the outlook is for productivity and, and will technology benefit productivity or not? I'm a little bit skeptical on that front. So uh, th- those secular forces of disinflation, I think, are uh, weaker than they've been for you know, any time in the last 20 years. Yeah, I'm wondering how much, I mean, and, and you think about the trend, certainly one of the things pushing inflation now has been the shift to goods consumption. Nobody's going out or they weren't going out and, and doing as much services consumption. So there's huge demand for goods and push the, the supply chain issues and, and the pressures there. And as, as you shift over, it'll be interesting. And then and just the, the labor supply has been one of the key issues for the U.S. here. And, and the question is how much more work can be done remotely via you know these technology platforms and being relocated. Do, do you have a view? Will there be and you know certainly one of the challenges is getting workers, immigration issues. Can you do any of that? And, and can you get more supply chains globally in some ways for for some of the knowledge workers in, in the economy? I think I think that employers at this point are engaging in any and all efforts. To, to, to find labor uh, wherever it is, wherever, wherever it can be found. So I think I think all of those things will be explored. I think I think there are some uh, some some challenges in the, the U.S. market in particular. Uh, you mentioned uh, you know immigration. There are you know that is such a political hot potato. It, it, it's hard to see any uh, significant change in in the ability to. Um, you know, increase the pool of skilled labor via via immigration um, in, in this environment. And one of the things we're clearly seeing also with many businesses is they are looking to substitute capital for labor where possible because the the, the labor supply and, and the, the uh, qualified labor supply um, is is so tight. So I, I think we're going to see a little bit of an increase in, in labor supply um, now that the, the pandemic benefits are gone. Um, inflation, in a sense, may may force people back into the labor market because their their cost of living is going up. And it's harder to make ends meet, and the fact that wages are also rising. So I think we'll see a little bit of relief there, uh, but that's more of a cyclical story. The structural story is still there, and ultimately, it'll, it'll probably be a substitution of, of capital for labor that, uh, that the private sector focuses on. We're talking with Dave Donabedian, Chief Investment Officer at CIBC Private Wealth Management. Uh, Dave, it's it when you think about your your big picture view here of inflation, that how much that's driving. Um, maybe most interestingly, I mean, we can talk about the equity rotation. How are you thinking about bonds in today's environment, given your three and a half percent and and the two percent ten year? It passed two percent, but it's still two percent, and you got the negative tips yields. What are you thinking about in the bond world? Yeah, I mean, our asset allocation um, uh, models have an underweight in in core fixed income for for exactly that reason, right? The, the projected total returns are low, and you also um, have to wonder about the, you know, sort of the, the bonds as a safe haven argument. Um, you know, can be uh, much less effective if you're getting uh, surprisingly high uh, rate, rate hikes along the way. Uh, so, so we've been underweight fixed income, and basically said. Um, except for all but the most conservative investors, 
from a, a total return standpoint, uh, living with some of the volatility we're going to see in the equity markets um, will probably pay off relative to the return in, in, in fixed income. Uh, and and it is, do you think then it, it, one of the big moves positive this year has been commodities uh, and, and oil in particular, but all the commodities generally? Is that, is that something as part of an alternatives allocation as you think about hedging the equity risk and the bond risk? Are you doing more in alternatives or, or what kind of alternatives do you think are, are worth exploring? Yeah, we, we are. And, and actually from just over a year ago, we put into our asset allocation models a uh, exposure to a diversified pool of commodities, which includes energy, but also uh, industrial metals, agricultural products, et cetera, gold, silver, um, as a not, not just a hedge against inflation, but something that would benefit from a, a rising inflation rate. Um, that's obviously, you know, done it well for a year, but but we think that it still makes sense to have that uh, exposure. Another thing, we talk, you were talking about fixed income. You know, there are some alternatives in the fixed income area that can benefit as well. Floating rate debt or bank loans, where where the coupons will, will reset higher as the Fed moves rates higher, uh, is a way to you know uh, earn a decent income stream and actually benefit from a from a rising rate environment. So so there are alternatives to kind of core equity and core fixed income that can can add value to portfolios here. Yeah, we talked a lot on the on the first half about floating rate treasuries as one of those options as well uh, as just another one where. You know, as the Fed starts hiking, that's that's going to be at the the part of the curve where where it benefits the most. So interesting to hear that. One of the things on on equities, where do you see in, in terms of volatility um, rotation? How, how do you think about? You've been a lot of market moves on the growth stocks. Do you think some of those things have been overdone, or, or your view on inflation uh, means more for more punishment for the sort of expensive higher duration bond proxies there? Yeah, I think most of the you know, there are interesting ideas in all the sectors after all the, the volatility we've had. But, but by and large, I would say that in a an environment of strong nominal economic growth, which we certainly have this year, uh, and, and one in which so far companies have had pretty good luck passing cost increases on and maintaining their profit margins, that would favor companies that are more uh, economically sensitive, you know, the, the so, so-called cyclicals. Uh, many of those sectors also have, uh, you know, relatively lower Valuation, so I think there's uh, you know, there's more to be had in terms of good ideas in those sectors. The, the technology space, which everyone always wants to focus on, is you know it's a more challenging set of dynamics. I mean, some of these companies have just incredible business models, and and they're going to continue to crank out great earnings growth. But you you are paying for the most part. You you're, you're paying up for them. Uh, for the mega cap companies, there are definitely going to be more um, regulatory headwinds this year. Uh, so, so it's more challenging, and, and it may be that you put all that together, and, and just like last year, uh, the technology sector is kind of a middle-of-the-pack performer. There's always a tendency to make the, the tech sector kind of a soap opera, right? Is it going to lead the market higher, or is it going to get trashed? And uh, it, we, we could be in a zone just like last year where it's just kind of in the middle. You had like this 15-year bull market in the NASDAQ compared to everything else, um, and it just sort of drove higher. And, and even with the the sell-off, you've that is now you know approaching double digits on the year. But it's you know you look behind beyond the surface of the Nasdaq, and just because of the big stocks holding it up, how much pain has been held below the surface, and, and how many stocks are down right. 30, 40, 50 percent. We were looking at different biotech baskets. You got stocks down in call it like three months down 80, 90 percent. Like so, there depending on where you are on that spectrum, there's some real pain. But the main indexes have held up because some of the mega caps have held up pretty pretty nicely. No, that's absolutely right, and 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 what that tells us is that, you know, you do you need to look beyond the headlines. You need to look beyond the same ten ten companies that everybody's always talking about, and whether it's technology or or or, or more broadly, and there are opportunities there, and and even you know, within the the technology sector, um, you know, you can construct a great technology portfolio without going to the the Fang M stocks, for instance, um, uh, and a lot of those, to your point, have not enjoyed the upside over the last five years that those, those other companies have. So um, we always encourage investors to, to dig beneath the, the headlines and what everyone's talking about. How, how do you think about the U.S. versus the foreign markets? If you're thinking about the cyclicals and some of this 
rotation is is there a view that a certain regions um last year was very painful you know for china tech maybe that took its its lumps first in in the big tech rotation any any sense of how you're thinking about the foreign markets yeah so we've um we've counseled patients with first of all having a, a general exposure to to international equity markets we, th- we think it makes sense um it's been years uh, We've had a multi-year period here where the U.S. has consistently outperformed non-U.S. equities. That does turn, and when it turns, that it can go the other way for for years. Uh, valuations are much cheaper. You know, first on the on the developed market side, um, uh, you know the European equity market uh, PEs are much cheaper, and you have a much higher component of the the industries and sectors that are probably more timely. Those industrial cyclicals that, for instance, that people have hated for years. Uh, and in less exposure to technology. So that actually looks relatively attractive. The emerging markets are a little more uh, dicey because it's so hard to read what's going on in China. Uh, nevertheless, we, we think there's a valuation story there. And so we, we encourage investors to have non-U.S. exposure, both developed and emerging markets. You know, for me, one of the big questions and surprises of the last uh, 12 months, and maybe not with how, how aggressive the Fed has had to or start pricing and tightening, they actually haven't done it yet, but how, how aggressive they priced it, is the, the strength of the dollar, which has been you know one of the, in a way, a diversifier for volatility. But it, it, it could be, if you talk about the, the foreign markets and emerging markets, is that a, a headwind for these markets? or, or and, and actually, usually commodities historically did well during declining dollars. We've had the dollar being pretty strong. Any any sense of the dollar's role in some of these foreign allocations? Yeah, I think it's, you're right. And, and of course, the uh, you know getting the, the direction of the stock market and the bond market is difficult. Getting the direction of, of currencies is virtually impossible. It's the, the toughest thing to forecast. Um, uh, I, I, you know, I think I think that the um, we say that all the time too, more, Dave. Like that's, that's a yeah, common and, thing and, and on, it, on our asset allocation committees. Is what's happened to the dollar? And the best, and and that probably means the best thing is, is not, not to try and forecast it. But um, the, the dollar, I think, is um, you know, if I had to forecast it, would say is probably uh, you know beginning to approach a, a relative peak. Um, but we don't have a strong forecast of a you know significant decline or significant appreciation of the the dollar um, from here. Um, the other thing is there are. If you're investing in international equities, there are a number of ways to do that where you hedge out the, the currency risk. That's another option. Yeah, that's one of my big uh, big things I talk about a lot is is why bet on these currencies if you're just trying to get the diversification of the stocks. And, and perhaps the dollar is is actually a better better diversifier when you go overseas as, as it does often correlate with volatility in, in all markets. So. It sort of questions the way a lot of people have have thought about it, uh, of why bet on the currencies, but maybe the dollar being neutral, the currency is is sort of a a better long-run allocation is is one of my views. I would agree. Um, In terms of other big issues on your clients' minds, like what are are the the main pain points you're hearing from people as their volatility is is obviously disrupting and and, uh, it it could be nervous? Are, Are you seeing people take action? Are you having to counsel them to, to stay with it? Or, or what's, what's, what do you see on, on a flows perspective within your, your client base? Yeah, I think, I think, um, you know, the, the volatility in the early weeks of this year have, um, you know, certainly raised questions from some clients. Um, but you know, that the, there is also a sense when you, when you start to talk about other asset classes and other opportunities, um, a sense that, uh, I hate to go back to that old saying, there is no alternative, but, but particularly for growth-oriented investors, you know, bond market's not going to help you a lot. Cash isn't going to help you a lot. Um, I, I think for those who have a, an interest and a tolerance for alternatives, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting time. Uh, but for those that don't, um, they seem, frankly, when we talk about the bull market continues, but a lower return profile and, and needing to be able to live with more volatility, that seems to ring true to people. Um, and I, I guess we we touched on commodities, but is there is there other alternatives that you you think you find the most appealing for that uh, people willing to take a little bit more risk uh, away from equities and bonds? Yeah, I think um, again for for growth oriented investors who, who who can withstand some illiquidity in their portfolio, uh, there are still some really interesting ideas in the um, sort of small mid um, private equity buyout space. Not not the big. You know, not the big gorillas, but those focusing on 
um, acquiring and improving the management of, of smaller private companies, just as uh, you know, just as in the public market, small caps have underperformed large caps. There's an extent of that that's true uh, in, in the private market. So I think that's an interesting long-term uh, idea. There are also a number of um, you know hedge fund strategies that uh, uh, you know can, can deliver, call it you know, high single-digit returns without a lot of correlation to stocks and bonds and. You know, a high digit, high single digit return hasn't been all that interesting, right? With the equity markets compounding at more than 20 percent. But it's going to I think that's going to start to look better. So we would put that on the table as well. Look very interesting at the moment. Um, When you think about like we 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 sort of were we're singing the same tune earlier on inflation. If you if you say the risk to that view, what's the risk to your above average inflation? What's the what's the thing that would most cause you to go to go wrong on that one? Well, it, it would probably be a um, an overshoot by, uh, I'll, I'll say, the Fed and, and the world's central banks. In other words, they, they go from being behind the curve to, to racing ahead, um, choking off credit in the economy and, um, you know, essentially increasing uh, risk of recession. You know, the old saying that's been said a thousand times that the you know the uh, bull markets and, and and expansions don't die of old age; they're murdered by the Fed. There's, you know, there's there's some real real truth to that. So that the biggest risk would be the Fed goes from undershooting to overshooting on on tightening policy. Yeah, like we're so U.S. centric. There's some of these central banks around the world, like Brazil is now getting to double digit rates. Russia's got close to double digit rates. You know, you've been you've been seeing this hiking around the world. It's just the developed world, like Europe, Japan, the U.S. We're still anchored at zero, but uh, it seems like the time is coming and coming soon in March to see how aggressive. But uh, this was this was a lot of fun, Dave. I, I appreciate you coming on. Any any places people could follow your work where you would point them to? I would just I would point them to our website for uh, CIBC U.S. Private Wealth. Well, thanks so much again, David Donabedian, who's been the, the chief investment officer uh, at CIBC U.S. Private Wealth. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Thanks to our producer Patty Hall, our sound engineer Chris Tukes. You can listen to our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Thanks for joining. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 